Good afternoon. My name is Beth Almeida. I'm the Executive Director with the National Institute on Retirement Security. Um, NERS is a newly established research and education organization, and our mission is to foster a deep understanding of the value of retirement security to not just employees, but also employers and really the economy as a whole. So today's program is very consistent with what we're all about, and I would like to thank the Center for American Progress in inviting me to be a part of it. I would also like to thank all of you for joining us this afternoon for this uh, very important discussion on a very critical issue, the future of retirement security in America. With declining pension coverage, um, personal savings rates that are hovering close to zero, and home equity evaporating before Americans' very eyes, millions of ordinary Americans are questioning whether they will be able to retire and still maintain a middle-class standard of living. While there are some sectors of our retirement system that are getting it right, um, state and local pension plans come to mind. The state of retirement readiness for too many workers, especially in the private sector, is increasingly grim. Um, the situation is especially troubling for certain workers, um, such as low-wage workers, part-time workers, women, and minorities. The future of retirement as we know it, as we have known it, really will depend on our ability to identify sensible policy solutions that meet three objectives simultaneously. We need systems that first will allow employees to, uh, to have a secure source of retirement income that enables them to maintain a decent standard of living after a lifetime of work. Second, we need to make sure that employers can offer affordable, high-quality retirement benefits that enable them to reach their human resources objectives. And third, we need retirement systems that serve the uh, public interest by promoting fiscal responsibility, economic growth, and the responsible stewardship of retirement assets. So um, that's a tall order, <laughs> I think. But luckily, we have an expert panel today that I doubt, uh, that I have no doubt will have plenty of um, ideas for how we can work towards these goals. Our distinguished panel today includes Tom Mackle to my immediate right. Um, Tom is the chairman of the board of directors of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Um, Tom will set the stage for our discussion this afternoon, um, drawing on themes from his new book, When the Good Pensions Go Away, Why America Needs a New Deal for Pension and Healthcare Reform. Um, Tom's book, you'll see, is available, available for purchase outside, and Tom has graciously offered to stay afterwards to sign copies of the book, and I hope you'll do as I did in picking up a copy. Um, it's a very important book, and, you know, I know it's July, and we're all thinking about heading to the beach, and what's better beach reading than a book about pensions, right? <laughs> <laughs> Our second panelist is Christian Weller, um, senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress and associate professor of public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Christian will speak to us about the options available to strengthen retirement security through defined benefit and defined contribution retirement plans. And to my far right is Pamela Perrin. Director, policy director of the Initiative on Financial Security of the Aspen Institute. 
Pamela will discuss the need for more savings beyond those just for retirement and will present her ideas for policy proposals that help. Um, in standard fashion uh, here at the Center for American Progress, we will, following the panelists' remarks, open it up to Q&A. And so without any further delay, I'd like to hand the mic over to Tom. Thank you so much, Beth. Good afternoon. I'd like to thank the uh, Center for American Progress and Beth and, and uh, Chris for putting this event together, and I'm anxious to uh, share the panel with uh, Pamela. Um, people ask me, why did you write this book? Uh, and I say, well, it goes way, way back. Uh, when I was a kid in New York, my father was a cop for the first 10 years of my life. He had gone to college and law school before he became a cop. And when I was maybe 12 or 13 years of age, I remember asking him, how come you became a cop when you had a law degree? And he said, in 1942, lawyers made five bucks a week and had no benefits. Policemen in New York City made 26 bucks a week and we had benefits. So benefits was like impregnated on my brain at that point in time. When I came out of, came out of the service in the latter part of the 60s, I went to work as an organizer for the Marine Engineers Union in Brooklyn, New York. And um, the first year I was organizing workers in the insurance business and I was successful in getting lots of pledge cards signed by people to join the union because I kept emphasizing that we could negotiate a pension plan for them, we could negotiate a health care plan for them, and that was a very, very significant selling factor. Ultimately, I was moved out of the organizing area into the fund area and spent 14 years with the union administering health care funds and pension funds, et cetera. So it was in my blood. I used to go to parties in the neighborhood and talk to people, and somebody was a teacher, and somebody was a lawyer, and somebody was a cop, and somebody was a fireman. I'd say, I work for a, a labor union on the waterfront in Brooklyn. I'm really concerned about health and pension issues. The eyes would glaze over, and they'd say, I'm going to get another beer, and I'll be right back. They never came back. So this, this watching the evolution, if you will, of what has happened to our retirement plans and our health care plans has been something that I've been intimately involved in. And uh, after I left the union, I came into the investment business working with Taft-Hartley funds, state county municipal funds, some corporate funds, endowments and foundations on asset allocation decisions, corporate governance and issues, et cetera. And I became a believer in terms of the ability of, of uh, institutional investors not only to provide the best kind of program in terms of a defined benefit plan for workers, but also to be involved in other kinds of ancillary uh, activity, uh, ancillary activity like corporate governance. I have a diabolical mind when I look at a lot of this stuff, and I think that part of the movement of doing away with DB plans is to take away the right of institutional investors to stick their nose under the tent of corporations to and engage in some good substantive corporate governance uh, dialogue. So um, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book. Another part of the reason why I wrote the book is I've got a bunch of kids, and I've got 10 grandkids, and an 11th one due in October. And I am distinctly concerned and very upset with my generation that we have allowed this to happen, and no one is pushing back. You know, in the private sector, when DC plans started to come on the scene in a more robust fashion in 1981, there was real, no real substantive pushback. People were kind of asleep at the wheel. I talk about there's three kinds of people in this world. There are those that make things happen, those that watch things happen, and the third category are the folks that say, what the hell happened? <laughs> and unfortunately, about 70% of our population is probably in that third category. 
So this book is a call to action. Uh, it's, you know, it's not an intimidating book. It's not a technical book. It's not a heavily business book. It's just here's where we are today. How the devil did we get there? And what are the things that we should begin to think about to move beyond this? And that's, that's a challenge. But, you know, recently I was talking to a young man. I had never met him, but I, I talked to him on the phone a lot. He's part of a, a PR firm that does some promoting of, of my book. And he said, you know, until I read your book, and I'm in my mid-30s, I never heard of the expression, the three-legged stool of retirement. And I was like, really? Holy smokes. That was on a Friday afternoon. On Monday, I spoke to 300 firefighters up in Massachusetts. And I looked out over the audience, and I noticed that it looked as though the bulk of those young of folks in the audience were under 40 years of age. So before I got into my, my speech, I said, by the way, show of hands, I'm doing my own little study right now. How many are familiar with and understand what the three-legged stool of retirement is all about? 300 people sitting in that room, 12 hands went up. I went to another conference the following week in Philadelphia. 300 or so people asked the same question. These were people in the investment and the securities business. Larger number of people raised their hands, but the bulk of the audience did not. My maintain, if it's not part of the vernacular, then it's not part of any understanding with respect to that three-legged stool, which is a defined benefit plan, Social Security, and personal savings. And we know that each one of those legs of that stool are shattered in some manner, shape, and form. So we've got some serious issues here. I uh, had the good fortune of being appointed in the Clinton administration to the uh, ERISA Advisory Council to the Secretary of Labor. One of the first studies that we did was uh, looking at DC versus DB plans and the benefits thereof. And since I was in the investment business and working primarily with institutional investors, I ne never really got into the retail si side of things in terms of defined contribution plans. And I learned a great deal, like, you know, the average young person coming to work, when offered that benefit, one out of three signs on. That there's a, a terminology known as leakage, because all of these funds have the ability to take out a loan. The individual takes out a loan, pays the 10% penalty, pays the taxes, and by and large, 70 to 80% of those people who took out loans never pay it back. If you could talk to a 32-year-old who took out 10 grand for maybe a real substantive crisis in the family, as opposed to buying the used Harley or going to Hawaii on a vacation or putting aluminum siding or upgrading the air conditioning in their home, maybe there was a child that didn't have health care coverage and they had to pay for a procedure, to talk to that 32-year-old and say, Chris, by the way, you got to put that money back. Over the next 30 years, compounded at 8%, if you can get it, that turns into $240,000. Well, Chris would say, I don't have the money to put back. So there's that lost opportunity in terms of what that 10 grand meant for someone during the life of their, their uh, career. The other notion is that we're going to live in a society where young folks coming out of school now are going to have seven, eight, ten jobs during their career. We want to give them ownership. We want to give them the ability to roll over their money from one to the next. We want to give them portability. It's nonsense. Eighty to ninety percent don't roll it over of younger, younger workers. It's found money. It goes into the bank account. 
it goes onto the credit card, and it's history because we are in an anti-thrift environment, a culture that has evolved over the last 25 years, which now has created two societies, the wealth society and the lottery society. And everybody's hoping to buy that one ticket that's going to make them a major score, and they're going to put all of their problems behind them. So therein lies that issue. The other notion is that we're now going to have the average citizen by the way, the average American doesn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. Financial illiteracy in this country is off the charts. We're going to have them do their long-term asset allocation. I mean, this idea is one of the most absurd ideas on the face of this planet. I know people in the investment business who are client service officers, not portfolio managers, who are marketers. They can sell their product and know every nuance of their product. But when you talk to them about their, their personal portfolios, they say, I don't know what the devil to do. This is a real challenge for us. I say to any of the audiences that I speak to, you are all influential people in your community. Go back home, and I don't care what the political persuasion of the state legislators are, let's mandate in grade school, by law, financial education, and start teaching six-year-olds about pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters, and banks, and credit cards, and when they get a little bit older, compounded interest, because the world that they are coming into is governed by finance. You don't understand finance. You are history. You're not going to be part of the equation, and therein lies the dilemma. During this period of time, as we've seen this D.C. evolution, 1979, 62% of the workforce was covered by a defined benefit plan. By 2005, it had totally flipped. 63% of the workforce is covered by a D.C.-only plan. People look at those plans, a D.C. plan, as a standalone plan, as a forced savings plan, not as a retirement fund. The average holding in a D.C. plan or a 401k plan today is $59,000. Two years ago, it was $64,000. CNN did a study, one of, one of these things on a day-to-day -day basis where they say to people, are you using your 401k plan to pay your monthly expenses? This was in late February. 54% came back and said, yes, they are. I'll bet you that number has ratcheted up since we're now at $4 and change or close to $5 in some places for a tank of gas. People are using it to staunch the attack on their mortgage, to take away their mortgages. It's about time that we convince the folks here in Washington that pensions, in fact, do matter. What are the long term, and I've raised this with Chairman Bernanke. By the way, anything I say, I'm, I, have, I forgot to give my disclaimer. This is Mackel's thoughts. This is not the Federal Reserve. What happens, long-term macroeconomic consequences of a failed retirement system? Haven't the corporations woken up and say, geez, if we have this whole cadre of elderly people who don't have enough disposable income, who the devil is going to buy our products and our services? Nobody's thought about that? And when you start to talk to our legislators, and unfortunately I have a jaundiced view, and I grew up in a political family, my father was an elected official in New York, a state senator, district attorney, ran for governor, et cetera. I've lost the notion that these are our heroes, that these are the folks that are gonna make things right. 
When the predominant number of folks in Congress are multimillionaires, they can't equate to our individual day-to-day problems. They have no clue. They have no ability to connect the dots. And I now refer to them as no longer as policymakers, but policy fakers. And I truly believe that. You go and you talk to a congressperson about this or a senator about this, and you know, I walk in the door and I say, I got 50 things I could talk to you about. I'm going to talk to you about two things, retirement income, security, and the health care crisis. And make no mistake that these two issues are joined at the hip. If someone is good, fortunate enough to have a DB plan and they have a nice monthly pension coming in and maybe even they have a little bit of savings, we know that the aging process ultimately leads to the ailing process. And that disposable income that they have in their pension plan is now going to be funneled over because they have no longer have any decent retiree health care problems. We know that states have done some studies, California, Texas, Mississippi, that a retirement community contributes to the well-being of the economy in their communities. We know that there's an obligation now in public funds to report their long-term retirement liability on their, on the, on their uh, uh, annual reports. You know, last summer in Texas, one of the wizards in the state legislature decided that he would introduce a bill that would not require the funds in Texas to report this number. It passed, and the governor signed it. I raised the question, if you hide a number, does it go away? I don't think so. It reminds me of a case that took place in the 80s. They were interviewing the treasurer of uh, West Virginia. And this guy was challenged. He was really challenged. And there were some real serious issues in their pension funds. And uh, on the stand, during the trial, he was asked, Mr. So-and-so, do you understand what it means when brackets are around a number? And he said, oh, absolutely. Well, would you explain to the court what it means? Yeah, you're trying to highlight that number. I mean, these are, I mean, you know, kind of weird examples of where we are, but we're in an environment now. A study was done by a professor up at Cornell University. She looked at cash balance plans, and many of the corporations that rolled over from a DB plan into a cash balance plan, as if by wizardry, shortly thereafter, the pay of senior management of that corporation went north. Something's wrong with this picture. And in the public sector, where they still have healthy, robust plans, there's probably 36 states, and maybe, Rich, you can tell us how many states are under siege right now, but I think it's somewhere in that, in that ballpark that there is a movement afoot to take away the DB plans from cops, firefighters, sanitation workers, teachers, and a whole array of other public, public service employees. What kind of a society do we have when we're not giving them that advantage because they're not getting paid the kind of money that perhaps they can earn in the private sector? I don't know about you, but I want somebody who's committed to come into a burning building if I'm stuck in it to lug me out, or a policeman to run down a dark alley not knowing what to expect going after someone who may or may not have a weapon, or a teacher who's no longer committed to do the kinds of things that he or she does in a classroom to engage youngsters in the educational process. 
something is radically wrong. When I, I speak at, at the groups uh, two, three times a week now about this issue, and as I get to the close of my remarks, I ask one question. If you don't think any of the things I've just recited have any merit at all, I want you to ask yourself one question. How many gated communities can we build in this country surrounded by moats of money, protected by a twisted political system before those on the outside want in? While I was finishing writing my book, someone gave me a copy of Christopher Buckley's Boomsday. It's a novel. And the preface, which is only a half a page long, was about a, a moderator, uh, an anchor person, talking to someone on the ground in Miami. And, and uh, you know, Chuck said to Connie, Connie, what's going on down there in Miami? And, and Connie said, well, Chuck, today a tremendous group of 20-somethings climbed over the wall into a gated community, a retirement community, beat up the pensioners, drove their golf carts into the water, threw their golf clubs into the water, and carved Boomsday because the government had just announced that the first boomers went on full benefits and now their FICA taxes were going to go through the roof. We are going to enter an intergenerational warfare at some point in time. And I like to say that, well, I know my kids won't necessarily come after me, but I don't know about my neighbors. So I think Chuck Colson, you know, who got himself into serious trouble during the Watergate, went to prison, became born again, started an institution for prisoners, and had a statement, which I like to quote, the average individual is nine meals away from committing crime. I recently spoke to a gentleman who was retiring as the president of a uh, superior officer's union, and he said to me, I'm fearful. There's too many guns in this country. At some point in time, when people begin to wake up and they've got nothing to lose, that's when the guns come out. That's a frightening prospect. I was talking to the chairman of an investment manager firm and said, what kind of a society do we have where elderly people have to break their prescription drugs in half, occasionally go into a supermarket and maybe boost a steak to have a decent meal because they're tired of eating cat food and dog food? I have a vision that 15 years from now, the President of the United States, whoever that may be, will come on the air on a Sunday evening and go on the Internet as well and say to the American people in a fireside chat, We've got some serious problems, and tomorrow I'm sending emergency legislation to Congress. We've got to get all of those elderly people that are living under bridges along the highways and the byways and the railways of America back into some kind of facility. It harkens back to images from the Great Depression. So in case you didn't notice it, I'm pretty passionate about this subject and really PO'd that we can't get the attention of folks to address it. Thanks. Okay, Christian, follow that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me take a deep breath here. All right. Uh, well, this is the Center for American Progress, and we pride ourselves on being policy-oriented, so we take a call to arms like the one from Tom Sirius, and uh, we'll see whether we can come up with uh, some solutions. What I want to do this afternoon, well, before I start, I, I want to uh, put a little plug in. The, special committee, the Senate's Special Committee on Aging is holding a hearing on 401k leakages and improving 401ks next week. Um, and, uh, well, I will be able to testify there on my recent research on 401k loans, um, which I can only release then. Um, I would just want to make that plug. Um, but what I want to do today is I want to highlight a little bit directions in terms of policy initiatives, policy proposals that are out there 
both on the defined contribution side and on the defined benefit side. Um, and I'll, I'll try to weave them together towards the end. Um, the most important thing is um, that a lot of these proposals, although it's not apparent at first glance, have a lot of things in common. The goal is universal retirement savings coverage, meaning basically giving everybody who's working for a living a um, healthy uh, retirement savings plan. Uh, many proposals want to encourage the pooling of assets. So there is an understanding that we can do better in terms of fees and lowering the cost. Several approaches would strengthen the security of retirement assets. That goes to leakages, but that goes also to some of the stuff that we see on the defined benefit side to make sure that the assets actually will be there when people retire. And there's a growing recognition, and I know Pamela will probably talk a little bit more about that, that benefits have to last a lifetime, that it really... Um, it's Tom talked about ma asset management while you're working, but think about that's only one part of the problem. The other part is what are you going to do once you retire, how you're actually going to manage the funds. You have to guess how long you're going to live and then manage your funds accordingly. Um, I think that's a pretty tall order. Um, I know you could theoretically buy an annuity, but 95% of people don't buy an annuity. Um, if we pursue these goals, we can help to substantially improve retirement security where it is most needed, especially among low and moderate income families, but also among minorities. Um, I want to highlight a few basic themes before I go into the proposals. The first one is what Tom already said, a large minority, possibly even a majority of Americans are ill-prepared for retirement. The Center for Retirement Research recently estimated that between 44% and 61% of households, depending on how you define adequacy, are at risk of being unable to maintain their living standards in retirement. And this is not an isolated study. The literature basically has found for decades that we are around 35 to 45% of people are inadequately prepared for retirement. No matter how many tax incentives we shower at people to save more for retirement, that number really hasn't changed. In fact, it has actually increased in the last few years at the, as the Center for Retirement Research has highlighted. Second, household wealth is currently decimated, resulting in growing retirement insecurity. Something happened, something is in the water in Washington, but this seems to be Retirement Incomes Insecurity Month. There is so many events going on all around town, and all of a sudden people are paying attention. Part of it is, yes, we are in a bear market on Wall Street, and at the same time, people are losing home values rapidly, more rapidly than they have in more than three decades. Third, access to any type of retirement savings has dropped. At this point in the private sector, this is data for 2006, only 43.2% of private sector workers had a retirement savings plan, either a defined benefit plan or a defined contribution plan from their employer, down from 50%, which is not the great shakes, but that was the last peak in 2000. It is the lowest level at this point in more than a decade in terms of access to retirement savings. Fourth, we need to build retirement wealth in all forms. The retirement policy debate has often been framed as a choice between traditional defined benefit pensions and defined contribution plans such as uh, 401k plans. The truth is that the policy debate has actually moved, in my view, towards finding a lot of middle ground by introducing features from defined benefit pensions in defined, into defined contribution plans and vice versa, although the movement is definitely much more from let's learn from the defined benefit plans and really use some of those features to vastly improve defined contribution plans to overcome some of the problems that Tom highlighted. Let me illustrate this on part of some of the proposals that are out there. They are not all my own. They, I will give credit um, appropriately uh, where I can and highlight a few of my own ideas here. The goals in terms of strengthened defined contribution plans basically are, are in three different directions. They would allow for more pooling of assets to reduce the cost of 
those assets of, of asset management and of those uh, funds. Second, they would create universal coverage. Universal coverage, I'll explain a little bit, has different meanings for different proposals. And they would introduce more options to turn savings into lifetime streams of income. And that's really just a burgeoning um, discussion. On the pooling side, um, we see pool, the idea is to pool a large number of small accounts that could offer cost savings. In a, a report that I did last year for the Center for American Progress, I calculated that a one percentage point um, difference in fees over a 40-year career would reduce your savings by 24%. So this adds up to real money. Um, the idea here is to establish one large fund for private sector employers to join. The government would establish an investment pool that is open to private sector employers. It would be government facilitated, but not government sponsored. So it's basically the, the government is using its leverage in the industry to create such a pool. The investment pool is publicly administered, but money would be privately managed. The government wouldn't manage the funds. To take advantage of economies of scale, the in, uh, investment pool would be an extension of existing public sector retirement savings plans at the federal level that's basically thought of as an extension of the thrift savings plan. The fund will not be combined, and there are no transfer from public funds to new private funds. I know that this is a worry, especially among public sector unions. There's clearly a, the idea of a firewall between the public funds and the new private sector funds. The investment options would typically be limited between five and ten funds. Again, the thrift savings model here with five index funds. And the money would be fully portable so that they could be rolled into IRAs, 401ks, and vice versa. The reason why I'm talking about this is this idea has substantial bipartisan support. A lot of think tanks have put a lot of weight behind it. Um, here at the Center for American Progress, both my colleague Gene Sperling and I have uh, talked about this idea. At the Center for Economic and Policy Research, Dean Baker has proposed this idea. He was one of the first ones. Michael Calabresi over at the New America Foundation has endorsed it. And then also Mark Every at the Brookings Institution and David John at the Heritage Foundation have included that in their automatic IRA proposal. So there is a lot of oomph behind it. Um, and in, in addition, there is, we're, we're moved beyond just the Washington think tank stage with this proposal. A number of states have moved towards studying, in particular Washington state has already put some money into studying the implementation and feasibility of something like that under their existing retirement savings plan. Governor Granholm in Michigan has recently, two years ago, uh, endorsed the idea. Governor Schwarzenegger was the latest one in a li long line of people to uh, propose this idea. There's different wrinkles. Of, of the various proposals. Connecticut looked at it, Rhode Island has been looking at it, so it's Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, and Vermont. So I think this idea has legs. It will be, it will come, move forward, I think, at the state level, um, probably not so quickly at the federal level, but it will definitely move forward. It has the real opportunity to raise uh, retirement savings uh, for those who don't have them, especially in low cost environment. The second part is universal coverage. Um, all of these proposals would reduce the risk increases to savings and defined contribution plans. They come in different flavors. The first one is automatic 401ks. That's basically what we got in the Pension Protection Act. So we're switching under the, the default rules would switch so that everything would be autom autom uh, automated for the saver. That means uh, you or have to opt out of a plan, you're automatically enrolled if your employer has one. Then once you're automatically enrolled, there's an automatic default investment options. Um, then there would be automatic escalations. Every time you get a pay raise, your contribution would increase, and so on and so forth. Oh, God. Uh, I'm running way behind here. All right. Um, the next one is automatic IRAs, which would require that people um, 
that employers would offer the opportunity of direct payroll deduction into IRAs. Um, that's the David John and, uh, and Mark Evey proposal. The universal 401k proposal is the proposal by my colleague uh, Gene Sperling. That one would actually put government money at savings, but it would restructure the existing savings. The big part here is it would take away the current, would switch the current deduction for 401ks into a refundable credit of 30% of what you're contributing to your uh, 401k plan, regardless of how much you're putting in. Then there's an additional retirement part, an additional incentive to save. And then there's the guaranteed retirement accounts proposed by Professor Teresa Gilarducci of the New School University and the Economic Policy Institute. That one would actually mandate that the employer and employees have to put away their total, the total mandate would be 5%. Um, split between the employer and employee. I want to make a little plug. I wrote when I was at the Economic Policy Institute a similar proposal, somewhat similar proposal, uh, where the contribution rate would be 3% only borne by the employer. Um, also want to put out, point out that Rahm Emanuel had an uh, op-ed a few months ago in the Wall Street Journal that proposed a mandatory 1% from the employer, 1% on the employee. So this mandatory proposal is actually gaining some what we prefer not to call it mandatory, but rather universal. But um, just sound better, but that that's gaining some traction. Finally, an annuitization. Um, the government could offer lower cost annuities by offering by purchasing group annuities and again flipping the TSP type saving proposal over to the annuity market. Um, governments could allow DC participants to buy into annuities through the state government pension plans. There's some provisions for state employees in the Pension Protection Act to do so. There's some talk about tax incentives to annuities. Those are ten generally very regressive and generally opposed by a wide range of progressives. And then Pamela has written about the value of improved regulation to reduce the fiduciary risk for employers and thereby broaden the market for annuities. Let me talk about the B pensions um, because that's actually stuff I know more, I feel more passionate about. Um, as Tom said, I think we can learn a lot more um, from plans that work well, especially at the state and local government level. And the one thing we can learn from those plans is there are regular contributions to those plans. Generally, employees are required to contribute to those plans. A number of states have minimum required contributions from the employer. And those plans are well-funded. They get out of a hole quicker than other plans, and I think that's an important lesson. I've written about this, and I've argued that we should require employers at least to contribute at least what's called normal cost contributions. We shouldn't allow the employer to get away free and say like, oh well the fun fun plan is funded and I don't have to worry about it just because they happen to be a few good years on Wall Street. The employer should keep on making the contributions to honor the promises they made to the employees. The normal cost contributions is basically the amount of money that you would have to contribute today to pay for the benefits that you've pr promised in that period to the employees. Another proposal would be to um, smooth some sort of the assumptions of asset valuations. That's very technical. I'm happy to talk about it. It goes against uh, what the accountants are proposing right now, and it's kind of like accountants versus actuaries smackdown when it comes to funding rules. <laughs> um, I'm with the actuaries on that. It, it just simply makes more sense to take a long-term view, a plan has a 20 to 40 year horizon. Uh, we shouldn't treat them as if they're going to go out of business tomorrow, which is exactly what the accountants are doing. Um, and that has different implications. We're not saying the accountants, the, the, the funds should have lower contributions to their plan. What we're saying is the rules should 
be set up so that the employers make regular contributions, predictable contributions, that they don't have to like put a lot of money in, especially in the middle of a recession, and then get have, uh, get to have a contribution holidays during the good times. This is kind of the backwards way of doing funding. Now, let me make raise because two, three things very quickly on on, on the defined benefit side, just because they are on the um, they are on the agenda. Some people have proposed that multi-employer plans could be allowed to take over failing single-employer plans. Sounds nice, but I don't know any single multi-employer plan that want to do that. Why would you want to take over a plan that's either unfunded or sponsored by a bankrupt employer? Um, so, But it is part of the agenda. I, I'm not crazy about it. Um, the other one that's often batted around is non-collectively bargained employees could, private sector workers, could buy into a Taft-Hartley multi-employer plan. Again, I'm not sure why you would want to do that because it creates a free rider problem. And in unionized workers, the collective bargaining partners setting up the plans, taking on the risks, and the cost of setting up a plan, managing it for a number of times, putting it in a good shape, and then saying, like, and now everybody else who didn't participate can, can buy into that. And I, I think that creates a serious fairness issue. Um, the, and that leaves you ultimately with what I think is a really strong route Let's increase unionization rate. Um, Beth has a very nice chart that she put together once for a conference that shows unionization rate and pension coverage. And those two lines track each other almost perfectly. Well, we want to, the bumper sticker is, you want to have a pension, join a union. Um, and I, I think that's ultimately a big thing. We, we are working feverishly here with the unions on the Employee Free Choice Act and other ways to improving private sector unionization rate, making it easier for people to join a union, to level the playing field, and I think that's a very promising route to improve retirement security. And that goes also what Tom said. Remember a lot of the stories he had. Those were unionized workers who had a pension, and I think that's ultimately a very promising route. With that, let me end here. I'm sure I'm over time. Thank you very much. Take it away, Pamela. <laughs> Much, Beth. Um, I'd like to start out by talking about what I'm not going to talk about, and that is in your packet of materials, there is a new paper uh, just released uh, that I wrote with Gene Sterley of the Urban Institute. It's called Why Not a Super Simple Saving Plan for the United States? And it basically proposes a more rational and productive 401k plan that could substitute for a lot of the, the versions that are out there today. Um, most of my talk, though, will be not about the employer-sponsored plans, but about those plans that are not. And I'd also like to introduce you uh, to another report, which we fondly call George, for obvious reasons. <laughs> it's our report, Savings for Life. It's the product of three years of intensive work. Whoops, down. Three years of intensive work with CEOs of major financial services companies and their staffs, policy experts, and economic development specialists. Our goal was to come up with some smart solutions to turn around this country's abysmal savings rate. We were motivated by a belief that a substantial portion of the nation's families, especially those of low and moderate income, have been left out of the U.S. savings system. We also believe that the expertise to address this problem could be found not in Washington, but in the financial services industry. We recognize that our current system for saving has some major issues. 
In addition to excluding large numbers of Americans, it is extremely complex and therefore poorly understood and difficult to enter and navigate. It encourages savings through tax relief rather than direct government investment, so it primarily rewards wealthier households who need help the least. And it has failed to generate even an adequate level of saving among the households it does reach. What we try to find is the right nexus to bring the financial services sector and working Americans together. We believe that given the right savings vehicles with the right incentives for both savers and industry, we can get more Americans on the pathway to greater financial security. The system of saving we've developed is based on five objectives. One, we need savings plans targeted to meet the real needs all of us face in our own lifetimes, education, home ownership, and retirement. We need universal plans available to all Americans at every income level. And we need simple plans. Many Americans don't save because the process is just too complicated. We also need better savings incentives, including a government match for working families. Saving needs to be more than just saving on taxes. Finally, we need plans designed in cooperation with the private sector. We often hear that savings is sold, not bought, and that's true. The financial services industry knows what works and what doesn't work in the real world. With those principles in mind, and by combining the best thinking and experience of smart people in the worlds of industry and policy, we've developed four complementary vehicles that we believe can vastly improve the savings picture for all Americans. The first is a child account to build savings from the beginning of life for a successful transition to adulthood. The second is a home account to build better borrowers through matched down payment savings accounts. The third is America's IRA to replicate the benefits of 401k saving for those with no plan at work. And the fourth is security plus annuities to give retirees an opportunity to use their savings to buy an additional layer of social security type income that lasts for the remainder of their lives. We're all concerned about saving for retirement, but we shouldn't wait until midlife to begin worrying about it. We believe that one of the reasons Americans save so little is they start saving too late. Saving, like all good habits, is learned best when learned early. Our system for saving should begin at the beginning of life. We view child accounts as a critical first step to turn America into a saving society. These accounts give American families an opportunity not only to accumulate assets so that their children can have a successful transition to adulthood, but also to instill a savings mindset that persists throughout life. Along the way, child accounts enable Americans of all ages to acquire critical financial literacy skills through a hands-on experience of saving. The design we propose has actually been in effect in the UK for almost three years now. If adopted in the US, all children would receive an investment account with a modest initial endowment of $500 from the government. Thereafter, accounts could receive contributions of up to $2,000 each year with government matching funds available for low to moderate income families. Child accounts would offer a 100% match of up to $1,000 a year, and matches would be delivered through the tax system directly to accounts. 
there would only be one basic investment fund structured for an 18-year horizon, as well as a cash preservation option, and there would be limits on account fees and expenses. Funds would be locked up until age 18, at which time the money could be used for any purpose. Here's the potential of such accounts. If a child's parents contributed just $25 per month and received a $25 match from the government, the account would be worth about $16,000, or about $10,000 in today's dollars, in 18 years. Our second proposal is for home accounts. We de developed this proposal long before the subprime crisis emerged, and it seems like a better idea every day. In America, home ownership can establish solid membership in the middle class, and home equity is an important financial asset. So we argue for making the saving side of the home ownership equation more powerful. Home accounts would be a smart use of public dollars to create a pipeline of financially prepared buyers. So we propose a savings program with a match to build assets for a down payment and closing costs on a home, to enable low and moderate income Americans to buy a home with less debt and less risk of foreclosure. Some basic features are that home accounts would be FDIC insured, and low and moderate income savers would get a 50% match on their contributions up to a lifetime cap of $5,000. The matching contributions would be delivered through the tax system and directly deposited into accounts. Assets could only be used when buying a first home, and penalties would apply for withdrawals used for other purposes. And if they were not used for purchasing a home, home account assets could be converted into retirement accounts without penalty. Here is the potential of home accounts. A low-income saver who contributes $2,000 a year would end up with about $16,000 at the end of five years. That means a couple could accumulate $32,000 for a down payment. In many housing markets, this would bring home ownership in reach of low and moderate income Americans who would also be prepared for the financial responsibilities of owning a home. And of course, we've thought about retirement. So our third proposal is America's IRA. Uh, today, there are 62 million low and moderate income Americans who may never have a savings plan at work. Um, to serve those Americans, we have proposed America's IRA, which uses the standard IRA to create a powerful substitute vehicle for retirement savings. It works like any other IRA, a private account opened at a private financial institution with the usual cap on contributions. The government would provide additional incentives to save, including a toaster contribution of $5,000 to encourage the opening of accounts. And there would also be matching contributions capped at $2,000 a year for savers earning under $40,000, and the match would be fully phased out at $50,000. We would have the same process of matches delivered directly to accounts and limited investment options. Our proposal is different from the auto IRA proposal. That proposal requires employers to enroll workers in a plan not at work automatically into an IRA or an investment program built in the federal government. We believe imposing a mandate on employers is the wrong way to go, and this proposal offers savers neither the employer incentives found in a 401k plan or the government matching contributions found in America's IRA. So we think America's IRA has more potential. 
Our models indicate that a low-income worker earning about $20,000 a year on average who starts saving at age 37 and puts away just 3% of pay for about four out of every five years would have, with a government match, about $134,000 or about $63,000 in today's dollars at age 67. Finally, our, we propose Security Plus annuities. We know that annuitization is going to be a big issue for the baby boomers. We need to protect many of the 80 million baby boomers nearing <coughs> retirement from outliving their savings or losing them in a market downturn. In our proposal, we offer a voluntary program that makes annuities available at a time when decisions about retirement income are highly relevant. Our proposal uses Social Security, a universal and popular program already providing annuities, to sell starter annuities. It uses the private annuities market to underwrite group annuities purchased through the Social Security Administration. And it uses the federal government as an intermediary between consumers and the market to distribute these annuities. And here's how it works. In the first year of receiving retirement benefits from Social Security, retirees receive an opportunity to buy a Security Plus annuity, which would be an immediate inflation-adjusted annuity of up to $100,000 in purchase amount from a provider previously selected by the government through a competitive bidding process. Payments would automatically be added to Social Security checks. Here's their potential. Remember our low-income worker that managed to save about $60,000? Well, at today's purchase rates, that worker could buy an annuity to provide him with an additional 20% in replacement income, which, when added to his 56 replacement income from Social Security, gets him to about the 80% level recommended by financial planners. Our report includes a technical appendix that describes how we model these proposals and contains more information about their costs and benefits. This slide gives you a brief glimpse at some idea of their financial impact 10 years out. And I'd like to end with this slide, which shows you how dynamic our our Savings for Life proposals are. Individuals can enter, leave, and re-enter the system throughout their lives. Account assets can transfer from one proposal to another and uh, continue to accumulate throughout life. They are universally available and widely offered throughout the financial services industry. If we can boost the level of assets held by low and moderate income families, we can help bridge the divide between those who have and those who have not and we can build a pathway to greater financial security for all Americans. At the same time, boosting the national savings rate can help put the U.S. on a course towards greater prosperity. The way forward must begin with the recognition that we need a savings system that covers all of life, from birth to death. We believe the savings vehicles we propose can serve as the first steps towards a more sen sensible system of saving for every American at every stage of life. Thank you. Okay, they didn't make a liar out of me. I told you there were going to be a lot of ideas and proposals, and um, and and we certainly have had that. Um, as a condition of participating uh, today, I, I was offered a perk. They don't give a lot of perks around here, but the one that they told me I could have was that I could exercise the prerogative as moderator to 
ask our panel the first question. So the question that I have um, for each of our panelists is, you know, we are in an election year, and we have a new administration coming in in November. We ha we'll have a new Congress. And if you could pick the top, you know, sort of what, what would be the, you know, the top two or three points that you would prioritize or that you would encourage a new Congress or a new administration to take on um, that would help to improve retirement security for Americans? Well, the first thing I would say is that you've got to get serious, because I don't think they're really serious about this. I think that when the Pension Protection Act uh, was passed in 2006, Congress thought, well, I've dealt with retirement security now for the next 10 years. We won't have to take a look at this. Uh, every single day, we see a dramatic number of stories about uh, the erosion of, of uh, retirement security. And um, that message has to be, I mean, I, I promote the message that it has to go out into the street to the, to the people, but it also has to go to the policymakers. Uh, and I think that they really have to take this seriously and recognize that, you know, that if we don't have this kind of security, we're not going to have a very pretty society. So I, I would uh, strongly recommend that they get serious about this issue and, and uh, encourage them to do so because the reality is that pensions do matter. Um, and they matter a great deal. And with 77 million baby boomers coming down that pike and 81 or 61 million Generation X is right behind them who are already saddled in many instances in, in you know, pervasive and significant debt that they have to uh, take this serious because, uh, seriously because it's, it's just not going to happen. Um, I think we have to change the culture. We've got to change the political mindset. We've got to recognize the economic consequences of not doing uh, something that's formidable that really puts some meat on the bones to um, offer uh, opportunities for um, retirees. And, um, you know, in the post-Depression and post-World War II era, the captains of industry, significant labor leaders, and the secretaries of Treasury, Commerce, and Labor would get together on an ongoing basis. They had constant dialogue, and their minions would write white papers and, and various other things that ultimately led to legislative initiatives. This was called the National Industrial Policy, and unfortunately it died in Jimmy Carter's uh, administration, never to be resuscitated again. And I think we have to recognize we've got to go back to that kind of an initiative, which is a tripartite proposal with the partisanship that has, has uh, evolved in our political system today. Um, I don't see us getting much done. I think we have to eliminate that and go back to a tripartite approach to dealing with issues. And while we're looking at the retirement security, you know, I don't know how many people we have to get together in the same room to deal with health care. There may be 86 different entities, if you will. The first thing we've got to do is suck the greed out of it and then have some substantive conversation. I think, unfortunately, President Carter missed an opportunity, President Clinton missed an opportunity probably 12 years ago. He should have set up a new secretary of the cabinet, the Department of Demography, to deal with the consequences of this pig through the python generation of baby boomers, the 61 million generations generation X is behind them, the 80-something million generation Y is behind them. And while we're at it, let's take a look at the immigration issue. I mean, they're part of the equation as well, and have something substantive to offer and some far, 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 far out thinking. You know, corporate America today 
is focused in on how you're going to do next quarter. They dance to the drummer of the 28-year-old analyst on Wall Street. And you ask the average CEO, what do you think your company will be and the employees of your company will be five to ten years from now? And they look around and make sure nobody else is within their sight. And they say, my company? I don't know where I'm going to be five to ten years from now. And I just hope my parachute is in decent shape when they pitch me out the window. And if you talk, unfortunately, to political leaders, their time horizon is a two-year election cycle, a four-year election cycle, or a six-year election cycle. And when you start to talk to them about, well, what kind of a society do you think is going to exist ten years from now, they say, I don't know. I'm not going to be here. It doesn't matter to me. They've got theirs. I say, let's, tie, let's start a grassroots movement. Let's take away Congress's pensions and health care. Then they'll realize how vulnerable the rest of us feel. I'm serious about that. All right. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, one of people leaving here think the Center for American Progress is advocating their revolution. Um, I would suggest, um, following my remarks, I, I think one of the first orders of business should be passing the Employee Free Choice Act. And as I said, you want a pension, join a union. We got to be real about that, leveling the playing field between employees and employers. I think we will have a discussion over tax policy, over what the tax structure would look like, and part of that will have to be um, a clear revisiting and has to be of the tax incentives, the upside down incentives we give for defined contribution plans. I, I think both Gene Sperling and Teresa Gilarducci in their proposals are basically proposing to change. The, the way we do tax incentives to define contribution plans, and I think that's certainly one way that should happen pretty quickly. I, I think we can have a discussion over re requiring regular employer contributions for defined benefit plans to at least set a floor so that we avoid the problems that are created by, um, by uh, contribution holidays. And finally, I think we will have, and as you can tell, we already have this discussion over whether the time is ripe for mandatory or universal contributions on employers and employees in addition to what we require for Social Security and Medicare? Uh, I have two proposals. The first of which um, I think the most effective thing that could be done was would be to make a, a genuine savers credit. We have one now that gives low and moderate income people um, a government match for their savings, but it doesn't reach um, the, it's not refundable, so it doesn't reach those Americans who don't owe taxes. So I think if we had a robust, a robust savings, savers credit, it would go a long way. And then the, the other thing I would say to Congress is stop. Don't do anything before you think about what you're doing. We have a very complicated system. On page four of my super simple paper, I've illustrated we have nine different 401k plan types out there already. So let's figure out what's point A, where are we, and what's point B, and how are we going to get there. No more bells and whistles and additional complexity. It just makes the 401k system, which is already a very expensive way to save, even more expensive. Okay. Um, well, at this time, what I'd like to do is open up the floor to the questions. And in standard fashion from the Center for American Progress, uh, we invite members of the media to um, step up and ask any questions that they might have. We do have a mic, so we would just ask you, we do have a large crowd here today, please wait till the mic comes um, and then identify your name and affiliation so that folks can know who's asking the question. Yes, sir. My name is Bob Wager and I'm with Prudential Financial. Uh, I'd like to come back to uh, Pamela Penn's uh, uh, discussion uh, of the security plus annuities. Um, 
a couple of recent studies by uh, the Investment Company Institute uh, and the Employee Benefits Research Institute show that only about 20% of uh, retirees uh, choose to annuitize. Uh, and about 50% just take a lump sum distribution and we don't know what happens to that. As I understood your proposal, uh, then at 67, the retiree would have to make some sort of affirmative choice to go into uh, the, this, uh, 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 this plan. Uh, but uh, I think uh, that that presents uh, the uh, retiree w with uh, understanding and, and making a, a choice. And I wonder what you think about having a default rollover from uh, the IRA to uh, uh, the uh, 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 some annuitization uh, plan so that if the retiree didn't do anything, he would automatically roll over into an annuity which would provide uh, a, uh, a lifetime income. Uh, do you think that would be a good idea? Well, the reason we proposed um, the system we did is that we think, uh, learning from behavioral finance, that people make better decisions at a time when a decision is highly relevant to them. And we think the first year of taking Social Security benefits is a time when people really do stop and think about how much money they have compared to how much money they used to have and how much more they need. So. Um, we just wanted to propose starter annuities and to use a very popular program to educate people about the value of annuities. We did not want to turn the Social Security Administration into uh, an insurance brokerage. These would just be starter annuities. And at the same time, we are also realizing that the um, choice of buying an annuity, when and how much, is very is highly personal. It depends on what your other financial assets are, what your health status is, what your family obligations are. So at least at this point in time, I would not be in favor of default annuitization. Okay. Um, any, any other questions from members of the media or? Yeah. Um, Mike Wyan with uh, BNA Pension and Benefits. So this is for Tom and or any of the other members of the panel that wish to communicate. But from a p pure policy level, aren't Americans uh, seriously conflicted when the message is coming out of uh, the administration and the Congress is to spend to uh, energize the economy at the same time that we need to save more? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we, uh, we live in a culture of debt. Um, and for probably 25 years now, there have been, you know, various kinds of institutions have promoted uh, an anti-thrift environment. And so people aren't used to savings. People say, I got to have it. I need it. I want it today. And it's that instant gratification that has unfolded. And, and that's a cultural thing that has evolved uh, by virtue of, uh, you know, advertising and all kinds of other issues that have been utilized to garner people's attention that they have to have this product or this service, and if they don't get it, they're going to be without it, or, you know, our propensity to keep up with the Joneses. I mean, there's a whole list of things, I think, that contribute to where we are today. I mean, when, you know, after 9-11, when the president got up and the, the nation was grieving, for him to say, well, go on, 
go out and go shopping. I mean, what the devil kind of a message was that to people? Uh, we needed something else in, in terms of uh, recognition that that's not the best way. Now, we've seen since 2003 through 2007, um, consumerism represents some 70% of the GDP. Um, there's some folks that think that perhaps we're going to start to see that number ratchet down significantly because of energy costs, food costs, tuition costs, and all of the other things that contributed to an inflationary kind of an environment. And, you know, when you talk to uh, parents who have children who are old enough, they're either out in the world or they're in college or whatever, and they say, well, my son or daughter's ability to deal with their credit card being being uh, uh, overextended is to get another credit card. The average number of credit cards held by individuals in the United States is five. In um, Brazil, it's two and a half people per card. In Europe, it's nine and a half people per card. In China, it's 33 people per card. And in India, it's 66 people per card. We are at the max. You know, I mean, it, where do we go with this? And uh, it's a whole new, you know, methodology that has to be thought about. How do we educate younger folks? Because there are some that are, unfortunately, riveted on spending. You know, I, I read a statistic. I think it was like almost 6% of the population are compulsive about buying things. I mean, I, I would suspect that that number is significantly higher. We have raised an entire generation of Olympic-style, world-class shoppers. And we've got to turn that baby around in some fashion and say, guess what? You don't need it all. You will survive. You will enjoy yourself. You do not need it all. Uh, I have, uh, there is certainly something about culture, and, and um, I, don't, I don't want to diminish this, but like when you look at the numbers and, and when you look at the microservice, what you find over time is actually people are becoming more willing to save. And more, they're, they're, they want to save more. The problem is, I think, an ability to save. Um, because what you see in the debt numbers is, yes, people have ratcheted up credit cards and lots of credit cards, but it's typically not going, what's not, it's not driven by plasma screen TVs and iPods. It's by healthcare and by tuition costs and by the big ticket items, the, the stuff that actually costs real money. And uh, the, the, so how can we have our cake and eat it too? Well, the way we get that is we raise incomes. We actually avoid the problem that we had since 2001, where we had a growing economy. And then on the other side, we had the weakest employment growth since the Great Depression. We had flat wages and we had declining benefits. And so we had the resources, but we didn't share it with workers. And these are average worker numbers. Even on the worker side, on the, those recipient side, we have grown inequality. And, and so I, I think the, the role here is how do we tie a good fortunes in the economy to rising incomes? And that's, again, unionization, higher minimum wage, earned income tax credit, a more progressive taxation system. There's a number of things you can do. The resources are there. we got to share them with the people who produce. And that ultimately will get us out of the debt trap that we have found ourselves in for the last seven years. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I'm sorry, Pamela. Please do. Yes. I, I guess I just want to speak from a psychological perspective in that thinking about saving can come about in unlikely ways. We're, we're learning from the UK, which has had child accounts for the last three years, 
that it's, uh, it's become a device that helps families start to think about their own financial futures and to start saving. About 30% of parents who have opened an account for their children are now starting to save, the majority of them through monthly direct deposits. And, it's, uh, and what we hear from focus groups is that um, while they, parents will not necessarily think about their own long-term futures, they will think about their children's. And that, that is the first step towards kind of a savings mindset, which then transfers into their own needs. Uh, for later in life. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, that was a good segue into my question. Uh, if you expect people to save, how could you possibly have the interest rates, the short-term interest rates, so damn low that you it's the equivalent of putting your money under a mattress? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, although, I mean, the right now it's not just the interest rates that you earn. A lot of the savings um, programs that we have are, uh, if you save, you you have uh, additional saving incentives through the tax system, through the saver credit, and other things. So the rate of return is actually substantially higher. Uh, so there's some real saving incentives. Um, yes, we used to think about uh, saving really just being determined by interest rates, but clearly that's not the only way we can go. The other part is also we do want people to save beyond just simply like a saving account. Um, we do want people to di diversify across a bunch of assets and, and um, rates of return in bonds and in stocks are higher than the, the current short-term interest rate. In the long run, um, right now, the, the way to look at Wall Street's misery right now is a buying opportunity. Um, hopefully this will turn around at some point, um, at least when I look at my portfolio performance. I hope it will. Um, but um, I, I think the other part is uh, you, like that, that goes back to what Pamela said. We, we want to have, we, we have to get um, financial education on the agenda and get a long-term outlook. And I, I find the proposal, I don't know much about the child accounts, but I think that is an interesting entryway into educating people. We do know when people are educated, they, they can take advantage of existing opportunities and save a little bit, and every little bit makes a difference. And I think that's ultimately part and parcel, and th there you do have to take a long-term perspective. For the last 12 months, we have heard that we are in uncharted waters from the standpoint of looking at financial markets. But I think it goes back further than the last 12 months. The average institutional investor who works for defined benefit plans and manages segments of their portfolios for 20 years have underperformed their bogeys. These are the experts, okay? The S&P 500 through the end of April has returned an annualized rate of return of 1.3%. Something is going on. McKinsey a global Institute came out with a study in the latter part of last year that said the new power brokers that are governing the global financial markets, oil, Asia, hedge funds, and private equity. Oil, the petrodollar investors. Asia, the central banks and the hedge funds and the private equity funds. We're now at a stage where we're beginning to see a lot of discussion about are we selling our economy to sovereign wealth funds. The opacity that exists within the hedge fund arena 
I raised the question at a Federal Reserve Board meeting, a board of, of the, the conference of chairmen, and with the governors in the room. We had a, a, a brilliant presentation by one of the economists on the staff about hedge funds. And he said the one good news that we can say is that because of the uh, sophisticated pension investor now, you know, the prospects of a long-term capital market implosion that we had back in 1998 is, will not be as significant. And I said, geez, to myself, I can't wait to Q&A. And then when he finished, I said, you know, Patrick, you gave an excellent presentation. I'm going to tell you a little story. I got a friend of mine. Seven years ago, he drove a UPS truck. Affable guy, local politician. Solve, he was a shop steward, solved his workers' uh, problems. Somebody said to him, hey, Steve, you ought to run for president of this local and run this local. It's 23,000-member local. He goes home, talks to his family. His family gives him a thumbs up. He goes back. Steve is Polish. He put together a balanced ticket, an African-American, an Italian, and a Latino. They won. In addition to being now the principal officer of a local union, he is the chairman of a $1.5 billion pension fund. He delivered packages seven years ago. He's a bright guy. So I'm on, I call Steve once a month. How are you doing? How are things going? You know, I like this guy, and I'm concerned about him. He says, oh, we just hired a hedge fund manager. I said, oh, Steve, <laughs> what do they do? <laughs> Silence on the end of the phone, and he says, well, our consultant thought it would be a, uh, a good addition to our asset allocation. At the, at the coffee break, unbeknownst to me, three seats away from me is a new face at the board. He's the deputy chair of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank. He was then the CFO of UPS. January 1st, he became the CEO. And he comes up to me and says, you are so right. I've got my people who serve as management trustees on these funds. They don't know what's going on. We are truly in uncharted waters. I think what, what the, 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 the Federal Reserve has done in this, over this last several months is remarkable. They are very, very serious and dedicated people, but I think there are other problems that will unfold. I mean, the credit card loans, the auto loans, all of the securitization has gone on. I remember in, in the early 80s, I was in the investment business, and Bear Stearns came out with you know, the new securitization. It was so complex then, but now the layers of complexity have gotten so, so out there that I'm sure that the CEOs, all of whom have been pitched out the window, didn't even know how to ask the questions about what do these things really mean? We've become too sophisticated. And therein lies the problem, I think, to a, a large extent in terms of how our lives are governed by financial markets and who are the players today and what are the influences that they have. In many instances, we don't really know. Yeah, uh, yes, sir. I'm Ed Friend, a consulting actuary. Tom Mackle and I have had a number of discussions on issues of this kind. And I agree with him, this country is in real crisis. Congress is dysfunctional. And we have no way to know how to know where to go. I have proposed, and Tom has heard me propose this, that we introduce a constitutional convention, not run by Congress, but by people who we put together to run this 
discussion. We would discuss retirement policy, health care, tax policy, welfare, education, immigration. In retirement alone, you have the question of whether it should be voluntary or mandatory. We have mandatory funding of retirement and Social Security. We're not even funding it correctly. The Medicare program costs not what we pay, but 6.44% of pay. The issue of leakage from K systems and other defined contribution systems are well known. It's been talked about up here on the podium and many other places. Cash income savings does not work because we spend the money before retirement. And those proposals which would prohibit taking money before retirement don't work because you can't prevent someone from claiming, I need the money for brain surgery. Right, right. You're going to deny it? No. And so the 401k so systems and other defined contribution systems are losers. So it has to be something other than cash, which is accessible. And I propose the taxation of individuals to, find, to finance this retirement system be small pieces of deferred annuity. The young person, age 20, would buy lots of deferred annuity. Okay. A middle person, a, a lesser amount. Uh -huh. And you have a non-cashable source. You cannot get something because you don't cash this annuity. Okay, let's turn that um, to our participants. I, I think that um, that question about, you know, if we're, if we're living in this sort of problem of a debt-laden society, you know, um, I think you raised two very important questions. First, you know, do retirement savings really have to be mandatory or forced? And then the second question of how do we um, enable individuals to bear these risks? Um, maybe our panelists can take a crack at those two questions. Uh, very quickly, I, I think we were, um, I think on the savings side, um, I, I think we're ultimately have to probably move towards some sort of an add-on, mandatory add-on to Social Security. Um, I'm not sure whether um, what the right size is a Rahm Emanuel 2% add-on or a Teresa Ghilarducci 5% add-on, but something along those lines. We have spent a fair amount of money on retirement savings incentives. Um, we have at the same time seen retirement savings coverage in the private sector at least decline. Um, inequality rise. So I, I think we, we have to, at some point, declare um, this system a failure and move towards something else. Well, I'll be the contrarian here, and I would say it's, it's absolutely premature to think about a mandatory system until we have a better voluntary system. There's a lot that can be done. Our current system is very inefficient and expensive, and I, for one, would be loath to require people to participate in it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, I think we're c coming really to the end. So I just want to ap um, apologize to those of you who might still have had questions. Um, however, I'm told that today's event really is just the start of a new conversation here at the Center for American Progress, um, which has just launched a new retirement income series of events and reports and other kinds of um, 
projects. And I think if the t uh, quality of today's discussion was any indication, I'm sure that this new series will um, serve as an important addition to this critical national dialogue on a very critical issue of retirement security. So please stay tuned and please thank me in, uh, excuse me, please join me <laughs> in thanking our participants. <laughs> And for anyone who would like um, Mr. Mackle's uh, signature on the books that you might have purchased, please, um, please come up to the front. Thanks.